I was talking to Tony just before uh, I came and sat down and he told me that he's going to see the footy later on. So, Tony, wherever you are, I'm really sorry because I have to tell you, brother, that football leaves some people cold. It just doesn't do anything for them. It just doesn't scratch them where where they itch at all. Um, For example, I once had a neighbour called Simon and for Simon, the, um, the, the frenzied activity and strivings of 22 men kicking a pig's bladder about a field were happily left to the earnest deliberations of such miserable and unsmiling pundits as Alan Hansen and Mark Lawrenson. Now for Simon, his imagination was captured by the prospect of Formula One showcase of motorsport and in recent years for him this sport had been deeply marked by the meteoric careers of two drivers the late Alton Senna and Michael Schumacher and even today you'll find um, you'll find serious publications and websites sagely debating which of these two drivers was the greatest exponent of this noble art and um, Following one of the, any of the the many milestones passed in Formula One, swathes of media output are devoted to the business of identifying the key elements. And sports journalists endlessly seek the vital ingredient of the outcome of every Grand Prix in terms of engine setup, steering geometry, tyre choice, pit stop, it just, you know, it goes on and on and on. Well, I can tell you that neither the Constructors' Crown nor the Drivers' Championship in Formula One begins to compete with the wonder and the mystery of Zechariah's vision. In one short chapter, and what might appear to be an incomprehensible vision, he's shown in the altogether different and completely serious context of God's plans the answer to that repeated question by the sports journalist, what's the vital ingredient? What's the one thing vital? Zechariah shows us to achieve the objective with which God has charged us. Well, what happens in this vision? Well, first of all in verse uh, verse 1 he's woken from his sleep. Most people dream while they're asleep. Certainly the, um, the females in my family do. Um, I have to confess I'm not really the most patient listener. When the latest bizarre juxtaposition of places and characters is sort of regurgitated for my delight. But anyway, this vision starts with Zechariah after he's woken by the angel. And before we get to the vision itself, I want to say a couple of things about sleep. Ah, wonderful sleep. Some uh, commentators that I've read are, are critical of the prophet for sleeping at this moment. Some of them say that with such momentous events about to unfold, he should have been uh, wide awake. Absolutely stark and staring, wide awake. But the prophet was human. And um, I'm sure you can remember, I can remind you if you can't, but I'm, I'm sure you can remember about the episode in the Gospels where the disciples of Jesus were sleepy. They were really sleepy, ever so tired, at the time of, of at the hour of Jesus' uh, great torment. And Zechariah 
needed his sleep just like those disciples needed to sleep in the Garden of Gethsemane in the, in the anguished hours before Jesus' arrest. Sure, those disciples were tired, but it didn't stop that uh, gentle yet reproachful question of Jesus. Couldn't you watch with me for just one hour? And I think, speaking personally, it's, it's just a bit too easy, isn't it, to be drugged with the weariness legitimate weariness that comes from doing all of the things that we have to do and we're not alert to God speaking to us. Um, when I was uh, a young person, Saturday night was the night when all the socialising took place and my old pastor would wryly observe that Saturday night was the devil's night. I think he meant that you know he had to face all these young people who were clearly nodding off during the sermon but um, anyway now Zechariah you're, you're all awake aren't you you know <laughs> cap fit you know make you wear it so Zechariah's awake now and in front of him is this um, is this piece of solid gold sculpture something of enormous value and something of great beauty and it's a lampstand supporting a bowl around whose rim are seven lights and there are channels to each light from a central reservoir which is itself replenished, apparently miraculously. The normal process of harvesting dual-grade olive oil is, is sort of bypassed. That this process, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's where there's a big net made of plastic these days which is spread on the ground underneath the olive trees um, and the people go around and they, when their olives are ripe, they bang uh, sticks on the, on, the, um, on the branches of the olive trees and the, and the olives fall down and then the olives are all gathered up. It says nothing about that process and neither does the dream say anything about uh, the, the process, the laborious process of pressing the, the olives to extract the oil. Golden oil just pours out. The prophet kind of just takes it for granted. It's a dream and it's all very muddled up and jumbled, but he sort of takes it for granted that we've picked up on the subject of the dream, that it's the construction of God's temple. And the hearers would have effortlessly picked this up, the readers, the original readers. And as New Testament believers, I think we should also be effortlessly picking up the fact that we should take this dream as very relevant to the building of God's church. This was after all the temple whose construction had been so long delayed while the inhabitants of Jerusalem were living in their panelled houses. They were living in luxurious accommodation and God's temple remained in ruins and unbuilt. And those depleted occupants of Jerusalem could quite easily have been uh, they could have been daunted by the awesome task of building this temple. But Zechariah asserts that this same Zerubbabel will finish the job. Well, who is this man, Zerubbabel? Well, obviously, it would seem he was a contemporary of Zechariah. He was a grandson, it would seem, of King Jehoiakim, who had been exiled in 597 BC. And 80 or so years later, as governor of Jerusalem, Zerubbabel comes back leading a company returning from exile in about 520 BC under the patronage of the Persian king Darius. 
He comes actually bearing financial aid um, from Persia and also gifts from uh, the Jews still living in Babylon. And the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah and he's told effectively that the equivalents, if you like, of hydraulic machinery, scaffolding and all the paraphernalia of a 5th century BC building site were not the means that God would use. But as verse 6 puts it, by my spirit, says the Lord. In verse 9 we can see that God has chosen this man who's not only started the work, but he's going to finish it. And I think we can say that God still is building two and a half millennia later and he has his Zerubbabel today. Well, I suppose I ought to tell you and outline a bit more about what I mean. Well, um, over the past seven or eight years, um, I've been fortunate enough to, um, to travel to Rome for a couple of long weekend visits. And each time I've been to Rome... I've been to St. Peter's Square and opening out onto St. Peter's Square is St. Peter's Basilica and if you've never been to Rome you really ought to it's awesome and the experience is truly breathtaking and as you go into St. Peter's Basilica you'll find your eye being drawn up over the fantastic throne gilded, ornate, unbelievable structure of St. Peter's throne to the fantastic uh, ceiling. There, unmissable, at the junction of the wall and the ceiling, two metres higher, these lettering, as the lettering of the words of Jesus, spoken to Peter after his great confession. You remember the the time when Jesus says to uh, Peter and the rest of the disciples, who who do men say that I am? And they've gone through the story, well, some of them say that you're Elijah, some of them say you're one of the prophets come back. And then Jesus says, well, what do you say that I am? And Peter, spokesman for the other disciples, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in response to that, there are these letters all round the beautiful Basilica of St. Peter's. Et ego dico tibi quia tu es Petrus, et super hanc Petrum idificabo ecclesiam miam. And translated from the Latin, the words go, and you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell it goes on will not prevail against it but I have to let you into a, a secret that the rock wasn't Peter the rock is Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Paul plainly states what God's doing verse 9 he says For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. In verse 11 he says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation, using gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. The incredible thing is that The Bible is telling us, first of all in the Hebrew, in the dreams and visions of the Old Testament, and secondly, in the operating manual style Greek of the New Testament, that God wants you and me, as spirit-empowered believers, to be involved in the construction of his temple, his church. Well, 
What are we going to need to build God's church? In Zechariah's day, normal building methods, I'm sure, would have involved massive human activity, mining operations for stone, forestry enterprises, providing high-grade, durable building timber, sourcing of skilled labour and craftsmen, carpenters maybe, um, transport, logistical exercises on a grand scale to say nothing of the uh, architects and the designers and, um, and you know, how are you going to feed all these people and today you might say that building God's church is going to take leadership, vision, commitment and selfless giving and Zechariah says no what he says really is that the paltry resources available to Zerubbabel were going to be effective in building God's temple and however you are daunted, and however, however just too much it might seem, by the enormity of the task which faces you in building God's church, the word of the Lord comes to you, as it came to Zechariah in verse chapter 10, who despises the day of small things? And counterintuitively, he answers the sports journalist's question, what's the vital ingredient? And he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And speaking personally, I'm not sure really if I faced up to the implications for my own faith, for my witness and for my effectiveness as a component of God's church, of this church. Uh, what could I do without God's Holy Spirit? What can I achieve? And there is a huge risk, I think, that the end result of a lot of human activity taking place in God's name is an edifice of wood, hay and straw. And the day will show it for what it is, combustible and temporary. Historical records show that that temple actually was built and of course masons, architects, Carpenters, joiners were all busily involved in its construction over a long period. But without God's Spirit, their work would have been futile. And equally, vision, leadership, giving, and commitment and gifts of administration are all going to be used in the building of God's church nowadays. But the same vital empowerment that was essential for the building of God's temple under the hands of Zerubbabel was going, is going to be vital and indispensable now. And there are obstacles. So what about them? Well, again, I'm afraid I've got to tell you a story. Two weeks ago, uh, Naomi and I uh, took part in an exchange with a village uh, in the Rhone Valley in France. And one of the activities during a fascinating weekend was a visit to a Gallo-Roman site. And although it's now deserted and in ruins, it had been continuously uh, inhabited for many centuries and it was easy to see where their building materials had come from. There was a whole hillside that was missing. Uh, it was just a flat rocky space the size of a fit football pitch where, you know, that was all that was left of a once really mighty craggy fell. 
And this is the fate reserved for the mighty mountain, probably Mount Moriah, according to what I've read, the site for the construction of Zerubbabel's temple, thwarting the builders in verse 7. Who are you, O mighty mountain? And this mighty mountain was made of rock, and as the Gallo-Romans were all too aware, it made excellent material for construction. And you can see it, can't you? This mighty mountain in, in Zechariah's day, out of the debris and the dust of the quarrying, comes the very piece, the massive slab that every one of the quarrymen knows will serve beautifully as the topmost stone, the capstone in the temple of the Lord. God bless it! God bless it, they shout. Um, the Jewish state was coming out of a period of captivity and there was emerging self-determination in this organisation after the period of exile. And they could see it for very good reasons as God prospering uh, their enterprise. Uh, God's prospering hand was upon them. They were, they, were, they were starting to stand a bit taller in the world. So you can imagine the national frustration and the, and if you like, the impotent rage that uh, they might have felt when 400 years later, both Judah, Israel, Jerusalem, the whole area disappears into the mightiest political empire the world had ever seen. Some mighty mountain, that one. A believing Jew would have been at a loss to have seen how God's purposes could possibly have been furthered by Jerusalem and their beloved temple being crushed under the Roman heel. And at the height of its power, the emperor issues a decree that the entire world should be taxed. And you know the story. A baby's born to an insignificant family. He grows up to be a man and after uh, a three-year public ministry he is executed by the soldiers of that same mighty empire. This man is described by Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4. He is the stone you builders rejected which has become the capstone Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And that gospel was carried from one end of that mighty mountain of an empire to the other by the very transport infrastructure it had itself put in place. In ours, a rubbable's hand, the mighty mountain becomes a level space. And God's going to sustain his church. He makes provision for the fueling of the lamp by positioning these two olive trees, each with a golden pipe. Now the explanation is, that is given to Zechariah when he inquires as to their identity is, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth, in verse 14. And there's also the intimation uh, that the dual roles of priest and king once exhibited in one man in the mysterious Melchizedek for so long separated in the kingly and priestly dynasties were to be united in the person of the Lord Jesus. And while it's thrilling to trace typology, the clearer parts of the vision, at least for me, re refer to the building and the things needed for achieving 
God's objective. And that's, that's what we're concentrating on this morning. And commentators do vary in their views. I, I, you know, I'm going to go with my own uh, hubris, but there we go. I think the Spirit of the Lord, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is one of the anointed ones, and the other is the Word of God, the Scriptures. And I know that this view might not fit with the reappearance of these two anointed ones in Revelation, but I think the Scriptures opened up and um, to reveal Jesus has, in my life, speaking personally, been how these anointed ones have evidenced themselves to me. We need God's Word. We need God's Spirit to sustain us in illuminating a darkened world. As I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you know, a plumb line people who've had any exposure to the building industry will know that it's a, a, a sort of piece of lead, a weight on a length of string, which is hung next to a wall that's being built. And it's there to check that the vertical line is true. And what was going to be the reaction of the people when they saw this plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel? And verse 10 tells us they're going to rejoice. Zerubbabel was in a position of leadership and you men and women here today who are in positions of Christian leadership, keep checking, says Zechariah, keep checking how your people are building. Keep their vertical line true. If you do this, says Zechariah, you'll see your people rejoice. And don't forget your own reservoir. Keep it replenished. And Paul says in the New Testament, in a different language, in Greek, as I've said before, Paul says exactly the same thing to, to te- Timothy. He says, set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely Persevere in them, because if you do this, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. No pressure then, eh? (laughs) The people will rejoice when they see the plumb line in your hand. And uncompromising as Paul is, you'll find him telling the Corinthians that no one can say, even that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, and leading the church of God requires every bit as much as as this, in terms of dependence on God's Spirit. Now this temple was to be for the um, glory of God and to provide God's illumination and witness. There are seven lights described as the eyes of, of God which roam throughout the earth. Eyes which witness, eyes which make aware. And Paul himself again uses the image of stars twinkling in a dark sky when he urges the Philippian believers to become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe or as the authorised puts it, as lights in the world as you hold out the word of life. When I was, uh, when I was little, uh, my mum taught me and my, my brothers and sisters to sing a little song when, when we were kids. Jesus bids us shine with a pure, clear light like a little candle burning in the night. In this world of darkness, so we must shine. You in your small corner and I in mine. Oh, my corner's got a bit bigger. 
And anyway, the opening scene of the Acts of the Apostles, the risen Christ reiterates the message of Zechariah. He tells the disciples what they will be and what they will need. In, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you're a believer today, you're one of Jesus' witnesses. So not only is the construction of the temple something which can only take place by God's Spirit, the continuing operation of the lamp depends on it too. Because there's no visible hand tending this lamp. And there's a miraculous process feeding and sustaining every Christian. And it's the Holy Spirit. And not only are individual believers builders of God's temple, they're also described in the Bible as components of God's temple. Apostle Peter, who's profoundly Jewish and forever drawing upon his, his legacy, his heritage as a Jew, he clearly identifies Christians as parts of this new temple, this church of God. In 1 Peter 2, verse 5, he says, And you also, like living stones, are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it's clear then that God's temple is now his worldwide church. It's made up of individual Christians and that's fine. And what happens next is that these individuals, for sound biblical reasons of mutual support and encouragement, start to form local churches. Again, that's fine, no problem. But then they begin, over the decades, to evolve their traditions into hardened, non-negotiable principles. Before many more years have elapsed, a living stone from one subset of living stones will struggle to acknowledge a a living stone from another subset. And you can see what I mean, and you can see that it it doesn't help God's temple to grow. And... um, I, you know, with my background and all that, I, I, sh- I should take note of all people. After all, as Pink Floyd might have put it, all in all, I'm just another brick in the wall. <laughs> so finally, I'm not going to go on. You'll be glad. God will build his church. He has chosen the man to build the church and the method whereby it will be built and the materials that he has chosen. That's to say, us as living stones. Obstacles stand in the way, a big obstacle stood in the way, a mighty mountain. But not only did God overcome the obstacle, but out of it emerged the capstone, the stone rejected by the builders, the Lord Jesus Christ. And last of all, God will sustain his church. But not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty.